You're listening to Splendid Chats, recorded live at 303 Melbourne on the 17th of February 2013. the best audiences I think of any podcast they, I, I agree yeah yeah we take can that see our audience. Australia yeah. yeah 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 take that this American yeah, way. yeah. this American <laughs> life welcome to two slash evil the second live edition of splendid chaps the uh, the number one podcast and TV film iTunes podcast chart I believe <laughs> Tonight we're obviously talking about two, we're talking about Troughton, we're talking about the Troughton period. We're also talking about evil. Evil. Evil in Doctor Who. <laughs> we have some fabulous guests, but I also want to mention, we have fabulous prizes. We do have fabulous prizes. Because we said that sarcastically last time. We did, we did. And in fact, I have to admit that last time, we got given the prize back. Um, <laughs> The winner of the door prize chose not to keep they it. Did not want, they did not want the book. But we do have fabulous prize. Shall I show them the yeah, prize? Yeah, show them the prize. Show them the prize. Yes, because uh, thanks to our good friends at BBC on DVD, we have DVD of... The Reign of Terror! Yeah! With two newly animated episodes to fit the episodes that went away Ooh. some time ago. Yes, animated in black and white. <laughs> just the way the BBC intended. <laughs> <laughs> Um, and it's, it's a pretty, oh, it's a stonker of a story as well. So we have copies of those to give away. And one of the listeners, yes, you listener, the person whose head I'm currently in, I like what you're wearing, <laughs> will get a copy of The Reign of Terror. How can they win a copy? Uh, they can win a copy by making a comment on this episode of the podcast on our website, splendidchaps.com, before the 9th of March. And then we will announce the winner in our next episode when we record it on the 10th of March. Excitement. I know. Oh. Can I just say, though, if we are inside your head and that happens regularly, even when you're not listening to the podcast, <laughs> please see a mental health professional. No, don't. Don't see a mental health professional. <laughs> If this was in stereo, that would have been awesome. Particularly if we were both doing it at the same time. See a mental health no, don't professional. See a mental don't kill anyone. Don't go and Be see nice to your Be mother. The you are. Don't, don't pay listen to fines him. He's a unless liar. you actually need to pay. I don't take that library book back. I wonder if anyone ever. <laughs> oh, I don't want to make no. Let's let's be nice. Schizophrenia is a real mental illness, and if you suspect you have it, please do seek help. All right, let's continue. <laughs> so, should we see where we're talking about and when? I think we should. Petra, why don't we hit the fast return switch? Today, we're travelling back to the period of 1966 to 1969, when boys and girls both had long hair. You can't tell them apart anymore. You call this music. It's just noise. Get off my lawn. Yes. <laughs> a youth quake is underway. Even in TV's Doctor Who, where William Hartnell steps down to be replaced by the anarchic, mop-topped, hat-loving Patrick Troughton. It's a time of anger and social change. 1968 sees youth protests in Paris, Belgrade, Warsaw, Mexico City, London and Rome. The Black Panthers are formed in California and the 1969 Stonewall riots in New York usher in a new gay liberation movement. In fact, it's only in 1967 that homosexuality was decriminalised in the UK and interracial marriage legalised in the US. Also, in this period, a little show called Star Trek begins on September 8, 1966, 
Whatever happened to that? Everyone's into psychedelia, including the Beatles. Wendy Carlos switches on her Moog synthesizer, and George Lazenby becomes the George Lazenby of James Bond films. And Vietnam, Vietnam, Vietnam. In the world of technology, the 1966 US television primetime season was the first to be entirely in colour. 1967 sees the first automatic teller machine machine opened at Barclays Bank in London. It used radioactive checks, only dispensed £10, and the first person to use it was Reg Varney from On The Buses. All of this is actually true. <laughs> In 1969, the United States took two giant technological leaps forward. One was watched live by an audience of millions. The other was observed by only a handful of people in a UCLA corridor in California. One was the moon landing. The other was the birth of the internet. Yet, 40 years on, the space shuttle has taken its final journey to a visitor complex in Cape Canaveral, and the internet is the greatest porn and kitten delivery system the world has ever known. And Australian Prime Minister Harold Holt drowns. But the city of Melbourne thoughtfully names a swimming pool after him. <laughs> Stay classy, Melbourne. Thank you, Petra. Well, I think that's, that's pretty much everything that happened in that three-year period. So I was just thinking, wasn't there a TV show that we were going to... Oh, so, yeah, yeah. Someone from the audience just said decimal currency, which is actually true. That did happen. 14th of February, 1966. So there you go. Can't stump him. Yeah. <laughs> There's a, there was a song and everything, John. There was, there was a song. There Actually, I like that. This is a new game where people just shout out events and you, yeah. you do some Rain Man thing yeah. and tell them what happened. It might not work for any other events. <laughs> so, John, should we introduce our guest? Let me take it from here, boys. Our first Splendor Chap is an actor who first appeared on our screens in the 2001 drama Crash Palace. He's been in other dramas, including All Saints, McLeod's Daughters and The Strip. And on stage, he was in Belvoir Street Theatre's Strange Interlude and their production of Noel Coward's Private Lives. But he's probably best known for his TV comedy work, which includes starring in Laid, The Strange Calls and the fabulous Outland, now available on DVD. <laughs> he's the Bill Hunter of Australian TV comedy. Please welcome Toby Tressler. <laughs> The Bill Hunt of Australian comedy. Okay, I've got a question though. I also saw online a claim that mm. you were in, and I know there's a couple of places, not enough to confirm, that you were in The Matrix. Were you in The Matrix? No, I was not in The Matrix. No. Why do people think you're I in The Matrix? Why. Um, but no, I wasn't. I was the coat. I was Neo's coat in <laughs> The Matrix. <laughs> I'll do it here. It's I visual. Need... You won't be able to hear it on the, see it on the podcast, but ready? One, two, three. <laughs> Very yeah, good. spectacular. Powerful. Oh, no other actor could be that stylish. You. So you, you're, you're a nerd, aren't you? You're a Doctor Who yeah. nerd? Yeah, yeah. I am. Yeah. I am. Yeah. Yeah. Did you keep that secret in your career? Or was that a thing that no, you no. I'd never... Not, not until doing Outland did I realise how, um, how some people had to hide their Doctor Who love. I never hid my love of Doctor oh. Who. Everyone watched Doctor Who. Every, like everyone I knew. Maybe it was a Perth thing. Everyone, everyone watched Doctor Who. Everyone went home and oh. screamed at the TV... And hid behind the couch and we, then kept watching. That was, it, was the, it was goodies, Doctor Who, monkey. There was, no, there was no way you'd get away from watching Doctor Who. Didn't watch Doctor Who. Yeah. Liars, that's who. <laughs> yeah. So when, when did you get into Doctor Who, though, Toby? What, who was your first Doctor? Pertwee was, was probably actually some of my, my first. Tom Baker was my, was my um, 
my falling in love with Doctor Who. I think that's for most people. My that seemed to be the case. Yeah, so that that was that was where I fell in love and was scared. Someone gave me. I remember someone gave me a at school like a magazine, like a like a Who fanzine or something, like a Doctor Who BBC magazine. And that was the first time I was like, oh, there's all those layers. Ooh, 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 so Tardis. Like that was the first time that. <laughs> Did you? I turned into Rick Mayo for some reason. <laughs> did, did, did you make those noises at the yeah. time? Yeah. Yeah, great. As I read it. Is Tom Baker still your favourite? Yeah, Tom Baker still has. I think you have a special love for the doctor that, that was, your, was your doctor. And he your was, first one. My first, yeah, your first doctor. But looking at, the, looking at Troughton's actually really fat, because I was never really, you know, I wasn't, wasn't of the age to watch it, but Troughton's got some, you can really see where... Um, Matt Smith, and I think he's talked about it before, Matt Smith and Tennant have, have both had a the big nod to his style of, of, of doctor, of a, kind of, yeah. A few of them there cite him as a, a real influence. Colin yeah. Baker as well. That sort of amiable, clowny... He wasn't as, as clowny in the, in the series as I'd sort of... I remember seeing like the, the two doctors and the five doctors and stuff, and he was a lot more clowny in those. Mm. And going back and looking at it going, he was less clowny in, in his series. But before we get into the Mighty Trout, we should probably bring on our next oh, guest. Oh, yeah. yeah. So you can't hog it all yourself, right. Trust Love. Shut up, Trust Love. Our second splendid chap has worked for many years in television news and current affairs and now lectures at the University of Melbourne in the Screen Studies program. She is a prize-winning author and has published numerous articles on film and television, including Star Trek as Myth, Essays on Symbol and Archetype at the Final Frontier, and Actors and Their Mythic Heroes, From the Doctor to Captain Kirk. As far as we know, she has never appeared in The Matrix, but she does feature in the documentary Trekkies too. She's Dr. Joymi Baker. Have you been in The Matrix? Uh, uh, no, and I, I just didn't have the letters for it, unfortunately. No. So neither of you in the film, but have either of you been in the real Matrix? <laughs> if yes. the Matrix is a repository of all knowledge, then, well, yes. Yeah, we are. We they are would now. be. So. Mind you, that means that all the missing episodes of Doctor Who would be in the Matrix as well. Oh. Mind oh. blown! Yeah. <laughs> How annoying is that, that the, the Council of Time Lords can watch, like, Galaxy 4 whenever they want? <laughs> But we can't. So, Joymi, you're, you're a Doctor Who fan. You into the show. Uh, I, I am. And, and thank you for inviting me to a, a, a place that is hotter on the inside than it is on the outside. <laughs> well, I, hope, I hope at least one person is listening to this and it's really super cold where they are. <laughs> and they're just going... Hello, they Oslo. <laughs> yeah. um, so when did, you, when did you start watching the show, Joymi? Uh, a similar era to Toby, that, that sort of Pertwee-Baker crossover. And, and I guess... Um, I agree with Toby that, that sometimes the, the, the first Doctor you come to is, is the one that resonates most strongly with you. But I have to say, as I've got older, I, I really enjoy all the other Doctors a lot more than I did when I was, I was younger. But there's nothing to um, take the place of being truly terrified as a child watching Doctor Who. You can't really ever get that back, that sensation of hiding behind the couch, watching through the fingers, not wanting to show your big brother that you're scared because, of course, you're not. <laughs> <laughs> what scared you the most? Uh, Bubble wrap slugs in outer space take a particular. You know, I have to look sideways at any piece of bubble wrap these days. Although, as long as it's not green, I'm usually okay. I just deep breathe and, and I work my way through it. Yeah. You were giving people power over you now, you realise that. <laughs> people who know you will listen to oh, this no, and go. Oh, no, it's my cryptid. I know what I've done. <laughs> you just walk, you just open the door one day and your house will be full of bubble wrap <laughs> painted green. 
That, actually, that would be kind of terrifying. <laughs> that would be kind of terrifying, yeah. Because you'd walk all over the place and be like you were squashing bugs. Oh, but also, you'd, you'd be going, how much effort was this? How much did it cost? This much bubble wrap? That's a lot of effort. That's a lot of planning. I think you'd suspect Australia Post stuff. We might get into this later, but I wanted to ask you, because you've done a lot of work uh, looking at Doctor Who and Star Trek, and, and we talked a little bit last show about the differences between American and English uh, sort of science fiction shows. Do, do you have any singular thing that occurs to you that, that uh, is different between the two shows? Well... I think we'll probably get onto this more when we get to the theme of evil because I think they look at it quite differently. Mm. But um, there's something very individualist, renegade, anarchic about the um, world of the Doctor that you don't really get in Star Trek. I think Star Trek's the kind of organisational structure that the Doctor sneers at, especially in the Pertwee years. We were going to talk about Troughton, but before we do that, perhaps we should find out a little more about him. Troughton was born on the 25th of March, 1920, which makes him exactly 22 years older than Aretha Franklin. Spooky. He studied acting in the UK and then the US before World War II came along and put a stop to all of that. In 1939, he returned to Britain on a Belgian boat, which hit a torpedo and sank. For some reason, Troughton then decided to join the Navy, even though the Navy generally frowns upon sinking. He became a lieutenant and was known to wear a tea cosy on his head in cold weather in the North Sea. After the war, Troughton returned to the theatre, although he would later disparagingly describe theatre as shouting in the evening. He made his television debut in 1947 and his cinema debut in 1948, appearing in three pictures including Olivier's Hamlet and Escape, which also starred some guy named William Hartnell. In 1953, he became the first actor to play Robin Hood on television and was a regular face on TV screens for most of his career. In 1966, while filming The Viking Queen, a movie which contained no Vikings, Troughton was offered the lead in Doctor Who. He turned it down. They kept offering him the role and more money until he finally said yes, going on to star in three seasons totaling 119 episodes. After Doctor Who, he remained busy with memorable roles in The Omen, The Goodies, The Box of Delights and, in January 1987, the very first episode of Inspector Morse. His constant work schedule is thought to have affected his health and he suffered two major heart attacks in 1978 and 1984. On recovering, he would ignore his doctor's warnings and again commit himself to multiple TV and film roles. On the 28th of March 1987, while attending a science fiction convention in the US, Troughton suffered a third and fatal heart attack. According to the paramedics who were called, Troughton died instantly. It was three days after his 67th birthday. Yeah, we... But now we're feeling all sombre. Yeah, that was, that was just a, like a little moment silence there for Patrick Troughton. <laughs> listening to that, sadly, what struck me was the fact that the, the boat hit a torpedo. Yeah. Not the other way around. It's like, <laughs> the Germans were just going, what, we just leave the torpedoes around. If you hit them, it's your fault, it's not mine. <laughs> your boat they... hits, it just... <laughs> Why do the Germans sound French? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, we, we can't all do all accents, yeah. Johnny. That is that, that is, was my cap drum. And this, is, <laughs> this is how they sound. That's what he did in the Matrix. He was great. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I was the albino twins. Let's let's start with you since we're talking about acting. Um, what's you? <laughs> For those listening at home, John did the air quotes, <laughs> implying that, uh, that I'm not acting, <laughs> can't act, or that acting itself is silly. I, I, can I just remind you that you, you did invite this person? Yeah. 
I'm just turn up, yeah. you know, just wandering past and Hello. <laughs> seat himself down. Yeah. I, I was just going to tell what, what, what your take was on, on, on Patrick Trout as an actor. Like when you were watching these again now, what, what did you notice? Um, like it's quite contemporary, really. Like it's, it's a quite a contemporary style of acting. He's... Um, it's you know there's there's a lot of you, you see a lot of that a lot of the um the early stuff because a lot of those guys are sort of rep theater guys and so there's a lot of very you know this sort of thing i say come in the door look at that doctor look out there's something here i don't know um Trump was sort of was quite you know he was very naturalistic it was a, it's a very naturalistic performance which is an endearing when you watch it even even with the other the other the companions and things you know there's a lot of kind of just straight acting and he was he was, he, 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 you know, all the levels of emotion and, 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 and acting, humour, comedy, but he was very, yeah, I, I guess naturalistic strikes me. For those of you who've seen, there's a, um, a, a rare TV interview with Troughton, which you can see on YouTube, and one of the things he mentions there is sort of tapping into a certain Chaplin-esque um, style of, of the old tramp, and, and you can really see that, but um, not in just a, oh, here's a buffoon, because you know he's really smart. Um, but he, and he often uses that as a, as a bit of a foil, you know, like, here I am, um, you think I'm being really zany, but in fact I'm trying to make the dominators think that I'm stupid, you know, so I can get one past him. So I kind of like that range of, you know, one minute he's deadly serious and then he's sort of hamming it up, but with a purpose. Well, it's because Toby mentioned before, though, uh, you said you remembered him more as being a comedic performer. And you go back and look at those shows, and in fact, he's not like it's, it's like he, he's a brilliant comedic performer, but it's not the driving force. He's a very serious, very intense doctor. In yeah, a lot of ways. and I don't know whether it's when you look back now and and doctors get compartmentalised and and you become oh well, he was the that doctor or he was the funny doctor or, or you know uh, maybe that's that's what's happened. But looking back, and I know I mean you sort of you can see little bits that he's they've, they've improvised or there's there's little. There's little things, and you look at interviews with them, and um, you know, obviously they sort of mucked around a lot, uh, and and continue to do that, and just to keep it light and interesting for themselves, because it was a punishing schedule. That's it's a massive amount. It's, I didn't actually know that was that. It's a massive amount of. Um, it was something like 44 weeks out of the year. It's I a think, huge, somewhere. huge. And I know the turnaround was be, be filming to on to um, to on air was only kind of two weeks. Which was a, which is a crazy kind of thing that we you know we don't do anymore just in case things go wrong. Just There's also that odd thing though where they had to keep running people out for weeks just for holidays, which is kind of it's so rare now yeah, this idea of having the structure. Put, no, and because it's such a machine, and, and we're very strictly kind of contracted to to not do that sort of stuff. But and also if someone gets sick, you know, normally we we shoot quite away away, so you know we can we can write around that. Um, but even I think it was in. Um, Mind Robber, the Mind Robber, where where they dropped an episode from the episode before because they they just went, oh, it just wouldn't stretch, wouldn't stretch enough episodes. So then they had to put filler in for the first episode. It was just sort of them, just three actors, kind of just talking in the TARDIS, and then sort of a, a psych psych screen out. You know, nothing really happens. And then Jamie got chicken pox. Well, well, the Fraser Kern has got chicken pox, and so they had to just on the fly change the actor just go oh now his face is different for some reason <laughs> and, and, but that, it both works those, so though. brilliantly though yeah they're both brilliant yeah, they're they're right. Right. first episode it is looks, amazing yeah because yeah. it's so cra- cause it's, it, lucky it was that episode as well does everyone did audience members see that one mind, mind robbers all, they, they go outside of all space and time and they end up in a place called the land of fiction where fictional characters can be real 
and the rules just get rewritten as they go. And it, I, it's one of my favourites of all time because you truly do not know what is going to happen next. No. Because, <laughs> no. you know, this guy turns up several times wearing a tricorn hat and a little waistcoat and he's talking in this sort of ye oldie-worldie bit. And then eventually, like, the audience is probably ahead of the characters in this one, but eventually they figure out, that's Lemuel Gulliver. <laughs> And everything he says is out of the book. It's really weird. There's also a lovely moment in that where the doctors worked out that they can't be harmed by fictional characters, which is weird because they're fictional characters, if, if they know they're... No, because it's meta. great. He goes, it's goes, super meta. It's so yeah. meta. He goes, no, well, we turned into fiction in this drama you're watching. Yeah. Like, just, um, but there's a bit where he says they can't be harmed by fictional characters as long as they know that they're fictional. And then the mighty carcass shows up, who's from a futuristic comic strip the doctor doesn't know. And I love the way that Zoe's going, you know he's not real. He's, no, we don't. I've never heard of him. Yeah. <laughs> I don't have time and, to read comics. <laughs> and then Zoe kicks his ass, <laughs> which is so great. I, yeah, because I go back to something you said before. Mm. I, I agree. Like one of the things that I noticed were watching Troughton, and I, I have to declare a bias here. If I had to hand on my hearts say one Doctor is my favourite, it would be Patrick Troughton, um, probably. <laughs> Until next what? week. Yeah. Until, yeah. Next, yeah. until next episode. Well, I'll next, say that again. Next month. No one's recording this, so we'll have no way of knowing <laughs> if you change your mind. It's right. Um, and and but, if you meet one of the actors, you can just, you just say, oh, yeah. no, that didn't happen. We'll <laughs> just change him. Um, but no, it, he's, he's extraordinarily assured as the Doctor. Like, he always seems... You get this sense, even when he's, you know, stuffing about, that he really knows what's going on or he's paying keen attention. But anything he does... Like, there's this real sense that anything he does that is stupid is really just a cover for the fact that he is planning something truly devious and clever. Although one of my favourite um, moments um, is in The Dominators where they're going back in a, a little rocket um, and Jamie, of all people, says, Doctor, I've got something to tell you. And he's, no, 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 come on, we've got to get go, we've got to get back. And he says, uh, no, but there's going to be a robot quark waiting for us right there. And the Doctor has completely forgotten about this because yeah. he's, he's thinking about the complicated bigger picture. And I kind of like that moment where he is actually, it takes a stupid person. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> To point out the obvious that he's completely lost. I, I do have one thing, and I don't know whether this is slightly controversial, but I think, I think everyone agrees Troughton is an amazing actor, and he is. He's so incredibly good. And yet I found myself, and we don't know this because so many episodes are missing from his particular era, where occasionally if I was going, look, you and, in fact, the cast are better than this material. And it's possibly one of the only real eras in which I keep, kept finding myself frustrated by how good the actors were working within... What had become, and look, and maybe this is because uh, last time, last show we did, was the first time I'd really probably watched that much Hartnell in one go. And I found myself amazed by how creative and inventive and exciting that period was, and I'd never really appreciated that before. Came to watch Troughton thinking, I love Troughton, this will be fun. And I found myself going, oh, it's another base under siege. I would love to see more of this stuff with him and Ben and Polly. Like, there's just not much mm. of it. Because we all know how, you, we hear all the stories when they get interviewed and about how well, there was this great camaraderie between Patrick and Fraser. And, uh, and also Wendy Padbury. And then you don't really get to see what... Uh, you can see that on screen. Like, there's all these great little comedic moments where, like, the, the Doctor and Jamie are exiting the TARDIS and they'll be holding hands and then the Doctor will look down and realise he's holding Jamie's hand, yeah. not Victoria's hand. He's like, oh, oh, yeah, oh. Uh, <laughs> or the bit in The Dominators where they're on the little plinth and in order to get off, they have to jump off. But rather than just jumping off, they hold hands like little kids <laughs> and jump off. It's so cute. And they behave, like, a lot of the time, they actually do behave a little bit like adult children, but not in a creepy way, like in a really sweet way. <laughs> but they do. Physic- physically, they're, they're, as actors, they're very, they're very... They're always touching each yeah, other. Yeah, they're like, very, uh, very Fraser tactile. Hines has always, he's always got his arms or 
you know, just yeah, they're yeah. always they're always linked somehow. That's true. He's always grabbing you, going, Doctor, we've got to get out. I've got to look out. Yeah. Trans also, I think, are basically for undercutting everyone, which I love. The way that if he's with anyone who's going big, he goes, I'll go smaller. Yeah. yeah. And it's brilliant. It's just great to watch. Yeah. It's, it's, it's very good at making you know, evil people look evil, even if what they're doing is perhaps a little cardboard. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> who's the, the actor in um, um, The Invasion? The, uh, the oh, evil actor? Playing oh. Fine Vaughan and, and also Mavic Chen, and I've forgotten yeah. his name, but he's, yes. Oh, oh, it's Stoning, yeah. Kevin Stoney. Kevin Stoney, he's brilliant. The most brilliant. Oh, lockdown. He was, he was laying it on so thick. That was it's the so, most evil character. It's the best fun to ever. do his voice, particularly yeah. when he's talking to his henchmen. He's like, Parker. <laughs> he just he says it exact, all exactly the same, the same every Parker. time. <laughs> you mustn't worry. And he's so evil. It's, and the, the, he, was yeah. like, he was like the best Bond villain ever, and yeah, he wasn't even in Bond. Yeah. <laughs> and he had that slight white albino thing, and the, the eye was a little. And, oh, and the new so, jacket, which seems yeah. to. Yes. Yeah. 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 Just oh. screams evil. Well, that's yeah. right, exactly. Who, who would choose that? And that's and, yeah. <laughs> the best piece of television writing I think ever is when he takes them to his other office, and it's because it's <laughs> so. he works in mass production. Of course, I've duplicated my office. It's the exact same set <laughs> with a different backdrop. That is awesome. Yeah. Like on every level, that is yeah. fantastic. Yeah. But I, I have one thing I love about Doctor <laughs> Who is how it makes those budgetary constraints and you know illness and stuff. It manages to find some sort of sci-fi plot reason yes. for that. Why that should yeah. be, you know, which is fantastic. I love it. It's lots of scout ships, I was thinking, especially in that period. There's lots of uh, either scouts or scout ships coming while the main invasion force will come later for some Sometimes reason. Sometimes so much later that you never even see them, <laughs> like in the Dominators. But, but, no, and you, I you worry see about a blip that. on a screen. <laughs> I worry about the Dominators. Though. Like, I, I, one thing I discovered, like, I'd never watched the Dominators before because everyone says it's awful. So I thought, oh, no, I'll give it a, I'll watch it. I actually really enjoyed it. Um, it's quite problematic in terms of its politics, uh, which yeah, is saying that not. if you're, <laughs> yeah, if you're a pacifist, like. you're going to die. It's basically... <laughs> but the, the, the actual pacing of it and, the, and some of the stuff that happens in it, I thought was really great. And I even thought the quarks were really... Like, you know, they're not... They, don't, they didn't deserve to turn up in that list of evil creatures in the, in the War Games trial, but they're they... They're pawns, they're pawns. They are, but, they, but they're still cool. Like, but, the, but the thing that bothered me about it was, and there's a few things like this, like, they cut it short by an episode, as we all know. The Doctor sort of comes up with this solution by blowing up the scout ship, but he hasn't done anything about the fact that the scout ship has told the entire Dominator fleet to turn up and refuel at this planet, which is now still there. <laughs> And completely defenceless because they have no weapons. The only place where they had weapons was in their nuclear testing facility, which the doctors just turned into a volcano. <laughs> I'm like, mm, yeah, that's a loose end, really, isn't it? People writing television for a different type of viewing, I think, than we've Everyone, known. People now. write for, for DVD box sets or downloads. I suppose, these days. Um, yeah, but episodic TV was, was, you know, was like radio serials, you know, that was written in the same, you know, you, you tune in again. But I, I found watching the Trout ones actually, again, because he's so, he feels so assured, like you, you can see how smart he is. There were a couple of times when I was watching it going, oh, any second now he's going to go, yeah, I know what's going on. And then you realise he can't do that now because it's episode one of six. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, or in extreme cases, ten. Because he reminds you of Matt Smith's, uh, in, you know, obviously both, it goes both ways, but you think, yeah, any second now he's going to go, ha, I know what to do here, and there's going to be an action sequence and the companions will blow something up. And that's the other thing that I noticed is the companions in this era 
are also really proactive. Like particularly Zoe and Jamie, they don't sit around just screaming. Like Zoe gets – she mucks in. Like even in The Dominators, she's quite an action hero kind of character. Like she's the one conspiring with the other member of the slave gang. Like, no, we're going to break out of here. Let's do it. Um, and Jamie's always shooting things if he can find a gun. <laughs> yeah, yeah. He knows a remarkable amount of 20th century stuff. <laughs> For, for someone who comes from the Battle of Culloden. <laughs> At the start of the Dominators, when they think they're going to be on a beach, he just gets handed a beach ball and he just starts blowing it up. No comment. <laughs> <laughs> hey, we used to do it with haggis. That's what we... That's what you do. It's a football. Hey, it's a foot haggis. There was one thing I wanted to mention though, about, about Troughton before we... It may have been that same interview you were talking about before, Joy Me. There was one way he was talking about one of his conceptions of the character when he was asked to do it was to do it in blackface and a lot of people thought this was a joke but it's now there's enough proof that this happened so do it in blackface and in a turban in a kind of um vaguely kind of arabian night style concept with this idea that being at the end of the day he could take the turban off take the, the the face paint off and no one would know who he was and that's really interesting that an actor who... And in that interview, he talks about himself being a character actor. Over, he uses the phrase character actor constantly, which is something you don't really come across very much. And the idea, I think, an actor who wanted to disappear that much, he didn't want any of the fame of it. It yeah, just seems mm. quite fascinating. But also, with the, whatever the relationship between doing, you know, children's television, what, what actors might have thought about about doing that. I don't think that, that he, he would have had that association because later on in that interview he talks about how his children were quite young while he was making Doctor Who and I think there were five and seven and ten or about and how um, he really enjoyed making something that they could watch and that, that he would tap into that to say, well, you know, what would they like? What would they find scary? And, and um, he said, you know, monsters are okay but he didn't want to do anything where there's little fluffy toys or dollies coming to life being scary because he knew how much that would terrify a small child. <laughs> it would look sideways at Teddy at night after that. Oh, wow, he must have hated the Pertwee era. <laughs> well, it's interesting what you were saying about him being private, though, because apparently there was very little publicity about him in the paper around the time that he joined because he wouldn't do any interviews. He was really publicity he, he did very few interviews. And later in life he claimed that that wasn't true. He just chose not to or something. It wasn't deliberate. It's it was... not that I didn't do any interviews. It's just that I chose not to do any interviews. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yeah, and I think in his later years, a lot of that changed. I think in his later years, it seems like he enjoyed the Doctor Who thing a lot more than earlier. And you mentioned, I think, when he comes back for the reunion specials, I don't think he's playing his character Doctor at all. I think he's now playing a new memory of him that's actually more fun to play. But, I mean, you think about uh, um, that early schedule is pretty punishing. And to begin with, they didn't even get days off. You know, they, they would have to do extra filming on the weekends and not see their families and things. So imagine in the slog of that, even as, as much as you might be clowning around on set and enjoying it, after a while you get peeved with that, I think. Yeah. So, you know, I think there might be a point to that so that in retrospect it looks a lot more fun than it probably was yeah, at the time. Yeah. yeah. I, I'd like to, just the last thing I'd like to say about him is I found this great quote and it's, it was from um, uh, the 17th of January 1969, so it was right near the end of his run and it was a guy named Stuart Hood writing... Uh, on um, in February that year, I think, actually, not in January. But he wrote about it when he was leaving. He described Troughton's Doctor as a wily Odysseus matching wits against giants and monsters or their future equivalents. And I thought, yeah, that really... I thought found that classical illusion really kind of sums up how he approached the character, that he was on this odyssey, he was on this you know journey, he didn't know where he was going to go and he'd come up about these things and he'd defeat them by being smarter than they were and, and outwitting them. Um, and I thought, yeah, that's a really good analogy. 
Now, many, many of you left uh, questions and comments, which is fantastic. We actually don't have enough time to get through all of them, but we've, we've selected some that we will go through in the break. Yes. Now, both Paul and Colin asked... Of all the missing incomplete stories, because as we've mentioned, the Troughton era in particular, a lot of these stories were just wiped. At the time, the, AB, uh, the, BBC, didn't, uh, the BBC didn't repeat the things. There were various licenses in place. It all makes sense why this happened. I just want to say no one is to blame <laughs> for the fact that about a third of this material has vanished forever. They go in with great hate, pains. out with love. <laughs> <laughs> in with hate, out with love. Yeah, yeah. I just, I just feel that there is a lot of hatred for people who are genuinely doing what made sense at the time. Uh, but a lot of the stories are now missing. So the question is, which missing or incomplete story would you most like to see? Join me. I'd like to see the second Yeti one where the Brigadier first turns up because um, lots of love for the Lethbridge Stuart Um, and you know who can go past a robot in fur (laughs) (laughs) do you know I I listened to the audio of that recently and it's one of those things that if you stop for any moment and think hang on they're robots who are disguised as as mythical creatures from Nepal who are powered by an unknowable entity who have guns. They're robots. Why do they have guns? They could be built in. <laughs> who are in the London underground who fire webs. <laughs> like, it's like it's, it's just... fantastic. <laughs> it's just so crazy Spooky. that it, it's the <laughs> It's quite psychedelic yeah. in a really weird way. It's the 60s, man. <laughs> Come on. It makes complete sense. Don't mess with the Yeti. Yeah. Just, just imagine, though, if you're a bystander uh, and you came out of the underground and you were like, oh, man, I saw this giant Yeti. <laughs> He's fired webs on yeah. me. And then he sounded all robotic and a, a really beautiful metal sphere floated out of his body and touched my head. And now I don't remember what happened next. And someone would be like, take him into the hospital. <laughs> Pretty much most of the monsters you could sort of probably don't bear, you know. You would go, Close oh, the ood. Yeah. Oh, it's, it's, it's like just, a guy and he had a, he had a ball. It's just well the, the Yeti that. complex. Yeah. That's it. There are so many levels there's a, there's a for the Yeti to get to that point. In the point. Yeti, there's, there's, I remember there's one sort of shot, there's, sort of, there's a Yeti, then there's another three Yeti walking towards. And there's, you can clearly go, that Yeti's got sneakers on. <laughs> yeah. They're cool robots. Sneakers. They're cool robots. Yeah, they, they knew what would be cool in, yeah. in the future. Yeah, that's yeah. Right. What about you, Toe? Is there one that you would like to see? I'd would... like to probably probably the um, missing bits, although they've done an animation, bit, uh, um, the invasion. I guess I'd like to see You, the, you didn't the bits. like the animation? No, I, I kind of did, but the, it, you, lose, you lose a bit just with the... Uh, you want to see them look at the cow on the scanner, don't yeah, you? Yeah, I do. <laughs> I swear. That's a really... I really, really do. Because sometimes you go, oh, and they've done the graphics so well, you go, that wouldn't have looked... That wouldn't... Oh, I'd just... I'd really be keen to see. And the invisible... No, and then there also... Because also, like, it's not the chameleon switch, but he go, he, he's, he's like, oh, no, that's the... It's like an... We've, I've accidentally turned the TARDIS invisible and everyone's like, oh, I can't see, Doctor, where are you? <laughs> he's like, just hold my hand, Jamie, come out, we go. And they emerge out of the TARDIS cartoon, like, oh, and it's, it, they're, they're invisible. I would have loved to see what they did. Yeah. They probably just would have shot an empty field. <laughs> it's the BBC. No, that's good, though, yeah. I, I remember watching, when I watched it recently, uh, that first episode and they're cavorting around in the TARDIS, and, it, and the animation's cool, but you're just looking at it going, I just know that... Fraser Hines and Patrick Troughton and, and Wendy Padbury would have had a lot more capering than this. <laughs> and when he's stomping the TARDIS control, in the animation he's got like a, like a broken lever that he's yeah, smashing yeah. into the TARDIS. I'm like, I'm sure Patrick Troughton would be like, he'd be all over that thing. Yeah. He'd be going bang, bang, climbing on top of it, smashing it with his skull. I don't know, it'd be great. <laughs> 
So, yeah, I think that's a good that's, choice. I'd like to see that one. Ben, yeah. what's your choice? Um, I, I think I'd really like to see Power of the Daleks because I'm fascinated mm. at where Troughton started because it, the, the snippets that you can hear and the, and the bits that you can read about it, it sounds like he really, you know, they made such an effort to try and sell it as the same guy but different. And I'd really love to see that. Uh, I'm a big fan of 60s Bond capering. Um, so the one I really want to see is Enemy, Enemy of the World. Uh, I, I actually love the one episode that exists. I think it's great. And that's apparently the boring episode, according to the actual wow. you know, production team at the time. Um, and I love the fact that it's just a story that starts on a really interesting level and kind of gets crazy and does stuff with narrative you're not expecting. The second, second last two episodes, I think, reveal there's a whole other plot you had no idea was going on. And, yeah, that's the one I would really love to see. What was the public critical reaction to Troughton taking over the role from Hartnell? Did he build on the audience already watching or did viewing numbers fall? Now, you did some research into this. I, I did. And you know what? The main thing that I did was watch the Tomorrow's Times um, special feature on one of the DVDs. So if you haven't seen this, what they do is they go back into the, the British Library archives to the newspapers of the time and, and they sort of summarise what the press reaction was. And interestingly, people... There wasn't a lot about the fact that the actor changed. Like I said earlier, he didn't do a lot of interviews because he was quite interview shy at the time. So there was no headlines like, you know, Patrick Troughton's going to be the new doctor like we would have now um, where it would be, you know, wall-to-wall coverage everywhere. Um, but there was a lot of... Because it would be weird if he was the new doctor now. It that would, would be. be. Spooky. <laughs> it would be. Although Surely. there was a rumour that that was going to happen, wasn't there? Uh, yeah. the Some 80s? of the research claims that when, when the Colin Baker years were going a bit wobbly and there was a lot of nervousness of the BBC that... Um, and this seems to have come from fairly high up. This may have happened. He was approached to come back as the Doctor. So it, it would have gone Colin Baker, Patrick Troughton again. Um, <laughs> because that makes so much sense. Which is, and, and, and clearly that's a terrible idea. Like, that's a really bad idea for a show as progressive and always moving forward as Doctor Who to try and go backwards in that way. But it, it shows you, I think, how desperate and nervous they were yeah. at the time. Well, the thing I found most interesting about the press coverage that happened back in the, the 60s, though, is that when they were critically talking about the show and reviewing it in the paper, they were really kind of harsh uh, at times. Like one, one of the things they kept picking up on was that clearly the schedule of making so much of it was too hard for them because they were doing things that were too similar. Um, but there was, some right, there was some really nice positive stuff. Um, again, there wasn't a lot about Troughton's performance compared to Hartnell, although there was, um, there was one bit where they were talking about the underwater menace in particular um, and they felt that Hartnell had a certain uh, dignity and that that story was absurd an awful letdown and painful, um, and they described Troughton as a clown or perhaps one of the Marx Brothers, and they thought they thought he was quite ridiculous by comparison. But most of the most of them were quite um, sort of praising of him. It wasn't him that they had a problem with. Um, for example, there was a great article where they talked about comparing Doctor Who to the Time Tunnel. And they said, the time tunnel isn't a patch on Doctor Who where quirkiness, bad temper and a respect for the individual more than compensate for the occasional cut price monster. (laughs) Uh, Written by George Melly, who was a jazz musician and art expert. So Uh, he should know. Yes, and I think the ratings were fairly similar from from the, the amount of sort of figures. I didn't look at it in exhaustive detail. But again, during the late 60s, even then, I think they found that if they put the Daleks in it, it got like 3 million extra viewers. So they did it a lot. All right, I've got another one here um did you want to address Troughton's difficult family arrangements now this is something that did come up during the research we weren't sure if we would 
talk about this, it. This but. is like the whole Hartnell racism thing again, isn't yeah. it? Every every week. Sounds peculiar family arrangement. So you were the one who found out about this. Oh, uh, well, because people kept mentioning this and I had to keep Googling and find, what, what are they talking about? And then um, his son, Michael, I think it is, wrote a biography. It seems to boil down to he was married three times. The family from the first marriage, which included Michael, he basically seemed to have just run out on, formed a second family. I'm not quite sure where divorces or remarriages come into this. But then his Troughton's mother, so Michael Troughton's grandmother, did not know that Troughton had left the first family at all and was unaware of the second family entirely. And so the first family would go around for Christmas at Gran's house, pretending they all lived together, and occasionally Michael would say things like, when are you coming home, Daddy, so we can be a real family again? Which would kind of give the game away to Gran. That seems to be the gist. No wonder he this. worked so hard. It was <laughs> three families to pay there for. There were a lot of kids. There, there were yeah, actually a lot of, a lot of kids. Yeah. So he said it was a gruelling schedule, but he actually requested the yeah, gruelling yeah. schedule to get away <laughs> to, from to, uh, And a whole bunch of them became actors as well. In fact, uh, we've seen a whole bunch of them on telly, but I love the fact that one of them was uh, Dudley Dursley in the Harry Potter films. Yeah. What, really? That's his grandson. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, Harry Melling. So, yeah, look, I, I don't, a strange, difficult life. Uh, Michael Troughton's uh, biography of him apparently is worth reading but is full of typos and, and, and written through pain and tears and poorly edited. So... I, I, I don't think sounds I... Sounds a winner. <laughs> <laughs> I don't huh. think I am going to read that. Um, <laughs> I'm going to let you read it and summarise the important so that's, bits. That's, that's, well, actually, no, l- luckily for us, uh, Lucas, who's one of the listeners of this podcast, actually did read it and sent me a summary, which oh, was... Thanks. Thank you so much, Lucas. Thank you, you Lucas. You awesome. Because I wouldn't last five pages without crying like a baby by the sound of it. I can't yeah. handle that kind of stuff. You are the laziest researchers <laughs> ever. That is... <laughs> I'll have you know, that I watched is. a lot of Doctor Who to research this <laughs> podcast. <laughs> Why didn't the Doctor do anything to save the planet from the approaching war feat in The Dominators? To teach those pacifist bastards a lesson. <laughs> so that sums up the, uh, the, the, the exact question there. I think you have a, a, an alternate reading of that Like a question. sort of slightly more serious question form. Um, so, yeah... Excuse me. Um, given that this is the Doctor of the Summer of Love, and yet the Doctor exhibits clearly aggressive actions, how many Ice Warriors died to bring you the seeds of death? <laughs> Where does this concept of a pacifist Doctor come from? That's a really good question. And I, in fact, I think you said that was such a good question that they deserve a copy of, of, of Reign, of, Reign Terror. of Terror. Of so DVD! Darren B, you've won one. And now, that's a really good question because there is this idea, and it comes largely, I think, the, the, way, the most common form of it is that quote from Terence Dix, which is from... He probably said it before that, but there's an interview with him in the documentary 30 Years in the TARDIS, more than 30 Years in the TARDIS, where he says, Doctor is never cruel... Oh, sorry, I'll do it in the Terry voice. Doctor is never cruel, he's never cowardly... And he, no, I won't do that. It's rude. <laughs> uh, he's never cruel. He's never cowardly. He's never violent. Like he always seeks a non-violent solution, and it's clearly uh, not, not true. true. <laughs> Even William Hartnell knew how to wrestle. You know, like a guy comes to assassinate him, and he just kicks his ass and throws him out of well. He trips over Vicky and falls out the window, but he makes him fall out the window to his death, presumably. Join um, me. Oh well, I'm, look, I'm impressed by anyone who um, can go up against and look scared against ice warriors who look like they've evolved mitten hands. <laughs> but um, I mean, thinking about the dominators. Um, he uses their weapon against them. And I think that's sort of a little theme. He doesn't like to 
necessarily um, be the first one to make a step. But as soon as someone's gone along that step, well, you're going to do that, I'm going to give that back, and then that's okay. It's in the come grand up cos- and yeah, that's, it's that's, come that's, up. That's the grand cosmic sort of balance sheet that that's yeah. okay to do if once someone's stepped over that line themselves. Then it becomes very literal using your own weapon against you when he takes the Cyberman's gun and just shoots him with it <laughs> later on. We now have this, and it's, it's part of the reimagining of the show when they relaunched it in 2005, that it really kind of relies on this almost folk memory of what Doctor Who is like and what the character is like and what it's about. So it's constructed based on our, our memory and our decision about how we like to think about the character more than the evidence of the previous program would actually suggest. So he's not very... I mean, yes, he does like to trick people and, and that carries on all the way through to Sylvester McCoy where he, like, he always sort of makes the villain choose to do the thing that's going to destroy them. And he gives them every... He's like, no, hey, if you don't do that. Don't do that. Don't do that. I'm going to do it. Oh, it killed me. I told you not to do it. <laughs> it's basically his modus operandi. And even the second Doctor does do that sometimes. We were talking earlier um, about Star Trek versus um, Doctor Who and it strikes me, especially looking at some of these early episodes, that this idea of elemental evil, like this embodiment of evil at the dawn of time is this far stronger theme in Doctor Who than it is in, in Star Trek. It, it, it props up every now and again, but it, it's much um, less prominent. In The Mind Rubber, where you have this story about story and storytelling about about um, you know how we've always had this fascination with good versus evil, and I find it really interesting that Zoe in that episode, um, who's really you know one of the smartest, most rational, really kind of on par with the Doctors in many in in many ways, um, and yet when she comes up against the Medusa. She crumbles, you know, like there's this ancient symbol of, of evil and she can't remind herself, no, this, this is fake because it's sort of tapping into that this is, you know, evil from the dawn of time. And that, that there's a real theme of the going through all through Doctor Who, there's this elemental evil. And I think there's something about also being a kid's show that that really sort of appeals to a young audience, yeah. this idea of, of evil personified. Yeah. I was, we, were just, we were talking before the show, actually, a, f- a friend of mine's writing... Uh, was was writing on a, on a kids show, um, and the producers kept coming back and going. Actually, you're making it too dark. Kids don't. We don't. And it's like I, I was just Hello. thinking back to Doctor <laughs> Who going and looking. We we're talking about the Tomb of the Cybermen, and you know, ten people land on the planet, seven get killed really horribly, mm-hmm. electrocuted, <laughs> di- just squat. It just everything. You it's know, a and, very high body count. <laughs> yeah, high body count, and and people are dying, not just a bit hurt, getting better dead they leave the planet going well most of the people we came with are dead so yeah so there is i mean i think kids you know certainly then we were much more i mean we we're scared of doctor who but we could understand evil and that that's what happened that's come up and that's what happens there's a funny thing i noticed too in a lot of the Troughton stories and then realized in fact it's it's the first time i think it was a late 60s thing and the realized it's actually throughout doctor who is the idea of the unseeable almost Cthulhu-esque kind of, you know, ancient ones that cannot be named. Like this idea of huge entities like the Great Intelligence or uh, like the Destiny Consciousness or there's actually a whole bunch of them. It's where you can go through that period and going... And even even today you see that showing up in things like um, The Impossible Planet. There are these great unknowable evils that are just intangible and out there. And I thought that was really interesting. The show's going, no, that's just evil. 
And then what we're going to watch now is the representatives of that evil. But that evil's still there. That's right, that and you can exists. never defeat that underlying evil. Oh. And I mean, that's why I really love that last episode of The War Games where the Doctor is making his case to the Time Lords and saying, well, it's all very well, you know, you sitting back um, not interfering, but there is evil out there and it will stay out there and, you know, that's the good that I am doing, even if there's a high body count along the way. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> There are things that must be fought. I also have... Can I, can I do my overthinking theory? Because I was very pleased with this. It. Okay, because I do like to overthink a thing. And it was connected to that. I started watching the these stories and I was thinking about... Uh, there's that parable about the scorpion and the frog. It's various things in various versions. And, you know, the scorpion says, carry me across the river and I won't, I won't sting you and we'll both get... And if I sting you, we'll both die. I'm not stupid. And the frog does it and the scorpion stings him and says, okay, we're both going to die, why do you do that? And the scorpion said, because it's in my nature. And I never liked that ever as a parable because it seemed to say that people weren't savable, you know, that the people are stuck with what they are. And then watching Doctor Who, it occurred to me that there are those in their nature evil things in Doctor Who. There's Daleks, there's Cybermen. There's all sorts of, yeah, monsters, especially in this monster era. And yet often they're not the real villains of the piece. So the villain of the invasion is not the Cybermen, it's Vaughn. But also you've got the controller in Day of the Daleks, there's Galloway in Death of the Daleks, there's Mike Yates in, in Invasion of Dinosaurs. It's kind of, to a degree, everyone in the beast below. Um, I looked up human traitors. Basically these are people who are operating on behalf of the aliens against us. And the TARDIS wiki website has a list called Human Traitors with 98 entries in it. And it occurred to me that in Doctor Who, evil is a thing that is there to be fought, but almost kind of like, oh, well, here we go. It's like doing the washing up. That's a thing you do. But real evil is when people voluntarily choose to give up the high ground. And they also, people who imagine they can control that elemental yes. force. You know, the people trying to think, oh, yes, I can be allies with the Cybermen. That's really going to work. It's going so many yeah, levels. Yeah, they're, so they're seduced by it and they, and they fool themselves by it. And, they, and they're... Uh, they almost always die. And interestingly, sometimes the aliens will get away or they'll be captured or they'll be whatever, but these traitors will be killed. Um, either, uh, you know, as, as a payback, like you were saying before, or, or, or more as, sometimes uh, as redemption for themselves. They'll actually do the good thing and die. And it was really funny because I was sort of pondering on this and then the word Quisling shows up in Day of the Daleks, which the Doctor uses, which means traitor. And the, the origin of Quisling is actually... Um, derived from the Norwegian politician Vidkun Quisling, who ruled Norway for the Germans during World War II. And I think World War II just hangs so heavily over Doctor Who. And I think that, that that's the thing with a lot of these characters, is that it's the traitor, it's that fear of, of being like, you know, Fran France, or well, it's just taken over. And then someone said to me too, said, of course, that's also how they ruled India. <laughs> and you go, that's actually how the English, they would have locals looking after these empires for them. So it's also, I think, a fear of England becoming the empire, mm. having, being treated the, the way... The way they treated other... Yeah. Yes. Yeah. I don't know. And so that was, my, that was my big overthinking thing when I was watching all this, <laughs> thinking that it's kind of World War II. And I think, to a degree, this is not such a big thing in the new series, because we're now far enough away. Because when the show started... You know, that was, that was 18 years ago. Everyone working on it would have lived through the war. Exactly. Everyone, everyone had this immediate connection to World War II. And, and there's that great ambivalence always also um, in relation to that towards UNIT, and I think that probably stems from that as, as well as this... Um, uh, I think like the end of um, Doctor Who and the Silurians, when the Brigadier gives the order to um, destroy them, and the Doctor is quite clearly disgusted. You know, this is his, his friend and supposed ally who's done this quite heinous thing and destroyed any possibility of future peace. And you know, the, the humans are quite often, even though they're his favourites, clearly they're quite often on the wrong side of that 
equation. We can say yeah, they're worth saving, but apparently really not. Really, when you get down to it, not worth saving. Yeah. <laughs> not that good. No, not really, no. Yeah, no. And if you look at Star Trek, they're good people. They're all, they're all morally good people. Yeah. You're not going to see, I think, corruption in Star Trek. You wouldn't necessarily believe it because they're better than that. Whereas I think Doctor Who, there's always that element that people could be corrupted. There's, you know, there's evil in everyone. But, but also that, that, that organisation itself leads to evil being done you know that 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 you have to have the mavericks like the doctor because if you have a hierarchy if you have orders then good people like the brigadier can do evil things because you've got to follow orders so then again there's that sort of post-war echo there as well you know i was just following orders it's also funny with evil we we mentioned sorry this is a much shallower level but so that it's also the mind of evil presents evil as being a a, a liquid or something that comes in volume yeah yeah you can you can measure how full a canister is of evil evil. and i actually went back and found the exact quote because it was amusing me so much yeah yeah but the doctor basically says i don't know you end up with this this machine full of evil the man goes no no the indicator registers only 65 (laughs) percent yeah we we discussed this on a radio interview we were doing we're like how do you measure like what is the unit of measurement of evil and the outcome that somebody uh, it, it was actually Daniel who's here in the audience because yeah. we, we were doing Katie's show on Joy 94.9 and Daniel emailed in to say it's the moustache is the basic <laughs> unit so 65% full is approximately 1.8 giga moustaches <laughs> Also, uh, we had moustaches. We've already done narrow jackets. I think um, poor beauticians should be added to that list. Um, I'm thinking the curse of Fenric, where obviously very poor nail extensions and frizzy hair have led evil. to evil. Evil. And, and I'm also thinking Kinder, where the mark of the Mara is not, in fact, the snake tattoo, but really poorly applied lipstick. Yes, because <laughs> you've got it all over your teeth. That's right. Yeah. That's right. How that's can nobody cool. else notice this? <laughs> I guess say Kinder is one of the most 80s stories ever. Watching it, it is one of my favourite stories ever. It is brilliant, but it was just amazing. It is like watching a Kate Bush video for an hour and a half. It's just fantastic. No, one, no wonder they thought she wrote it <laughs> for a while. Or was that Snake Dance? No, no, there was, there was a rumour that Kate Kinder. Bush had written There's Kinder. Massive, the, the Christopher Bailey or whatever the guy's name was just a, a synonym for somebody else, and it was not true. Um, well, I, I like Curse of Fenric I thought was interesting. You brought up the, the fake nail extensions. I, For starters, I thought they got really hot when they were evil um, but maybe that's just me I don't know maybe that says but something about me like the retro fashion you wanted the, the frizzy yeah they got really 80s and, and your I'm body like, Tyler yeah, fetish yeah, yeah, kicking yeah, yeah. in like vampire fetish maybe I don't know I don't have one of those don't take it um, fan but, fiction <laughs> but there's there's constant discussion of evil in that episode that's not like it's not real evil like there's there's all these people in it who talk about evil and it's clearly not the evil that Doctor Who is interested in like when Mrs. Hardacre is talking to the girls um, so these are two girls who they, they're told not to go to this particular place and swim in the water Maiden's Point and she keeps saying things like the only girls who go there are girls with evil in their hearts and they go there and nothing bad happens and they come home and she's like oh there's no place in heaven for you you're going to hell and there's, they're like oh and then they go back there and get turned into vampires <laughs> And come back and kill her. Uh, and really, you're kind of rooting for them at that stage. Because <laughs> Mrs. Hardacre's take on evil is clearly not... Like, she's clearly presented as not the Doctor Who version of evil. That this sort of archaic, rooted in, in superstition and slash religion, which is kind of how all ties in in that particular episode, is not 
what the doctor considers evil. He's concerned with things that are on a higher level and sit above all of human experience, like Fenric, who is that ancient, literally an ancient evil from beyond the dawn of time. Actually, Curse of Fenric also has one of the, one of the, I think, the darkest and probably most sophisticated ideas in Doctor Who, and it, and it fits with evil. It was the bit where around the Reverend Wainwright, oh, I yes. want to say. Um, yes. Played by Nicholas Parsons quite just amazingly. Famous in the UK as a game show host. host. Yeah. Basically their equivalent of Tony Barber. So imagine Tony <laughs> Barber showed up in Doctor Who playing a priest. Um, and he's phenomenally good. But there's a great scene where uh, it's discovered that it's, it's faith in anything stops the vampires from attacking. And they're coming towards him and he goes, no, I believe. They go, no, you lost your faith. And you lost your faith when the bombs started falling. And he says, no, I, I'm not frightened of the Germans. Go, no, it's English bombs, British bombs falling on German children. And the idea of a, of a British priest in World War II giving up on the notion of good because his side was now as bad as anyone else, I think that is the, one of the darkest. I can't imagine doing anything like that in the show now. I think it's only because the show wasn't being ignored in that period <laughs> that they could even do stuff like that because it's, it's, it's heart-rending. There was one more comment that I might read out because it kind of ties into evil. It might be a nice way to finish off. question I've got here is Doctor Who's tendency, is Doctor Who's tendency to refer to villains and monsters as evil a useful shorthand or a reductive simplification? In, in Moonbase, there's that one episode that, that exists where he famously describes what evil means, more or less, when he talks about there are things that must be fought and he talks about the fact that they work against everything that we believe in. And that's what makes them evil, is that they, they're so alien from our mindset and they will destroy us because they don't care about any of the things we care about, which is sort of how he describes the Cybermen. So is evil like a shorthand to describe that or is it just a reductive simplification so that the children in the audience know it's all right to blow the monsters up? <laughs> yes, it's okay to blow monsters up. Um, well, I think but some creatures are more evil than others in, in Doctor Who, definitely. I mean, I think the Daleks and the Cybermen do get a, a special place there because so many of the episodes um, are about, well, this, this is so evil beyond evil. This is not cultural difference or this is not fighting over resources. This is elemental evil and you cannot reason with elemental evil. You cannot take a mindset of elemental evil and, and think you come to their way of thinking and come to an agreement. So I think there's two different classes still of, of baddies because in other species he does hold out hope that, that there can be some redemption that there can be some middle ground but some are just no that's just evil and you're foolish if you think you can capture evil and reason with evil and it's usually those creatures that are unnatural in some way like the it's Daleks like have been yes. yeah well the Daleks yeah, have yeah. been you know bred selectively and genetically nature. altered to take away their pity and yeah. mercy and the Cybermen obviously have altered themselves physically and then you've got someone like the Sontarans who are also generally seen as irredeemable um, because they clone themselves in vast numbers just as soldiers with no but life a little bit adorable war. yeah well <laughs> They are now. And yet you get that, you know, that famous speech in Genesis of the Daleks of, you know, do I have the right? You know, this, this is one of the most evil nemesis, you know, in the universe, but still, do I have the right to do but, that? But even then he makes it not about the destruction of the Daleks themselves. Like, he doesn't go, well, maybe the Daleks have a right to exist. He just says, but what about all the people who have good experiences because of their collective hate of the Daleks bringing them together? So he's, he's sort of... I find that speech really interesting because it is great, but it also shows that he, he's not concerned about the Daleks. Like, he's resigned to the fact that they are irredeemably evil and cannot be saved. But his concern is, if I wipe them out, what about the effect that will have on people who aren't the Daleks? So he's not really care... He doesn't care. Like, if he could wipe out the Daleks and not change history, you get the impression, well, he'd do it. He'd just do it. But he can't do that because they're so intrinsic. They cover so much space and time. 
And that probably brings us as much as we can talk about. We have, we have a little bit more show to get through, but at this point, I think we should all be thanking Toby Treslav and Dr. Joy B. Baker. So we're nearly over for the show, but things we need to do. How can I win a copy of Reign of Terror DVD from our good friends at BBC on DVD? Well, if Not you, me, of course, because I'm doing the show, and that would be really dodgy if you, I won it. You are, in, you are an ineligible, John, even if you do comment uh, under not your own name. And I, I trust that you will not do that. Well, so. Yes, fine. If you'd like to win, if, as a podcast listener, a copy of The Reign of Terror, then you can go onto our website at splendidchaps.com, look up this episode, 2 slash evil, and put a comment there underneath telling us what you thought of the episode or asking us a question. Any kind of feedback will get you into the draw and we will randomly select one of our commenters in order to find out who wins our final copy and we will post it to you. Now, I think, will we post it to anywhere yeah. in the world? I reckon we yeah, will. we will. Why not? Yeah, it's, a, it's a donated present. We can pay the exorbitant postage to send it to you if you live in Abu Dhabi. But yeah, come on, leave a comment. But will leave they be able to play it? <laughs> oh, they, probably not, but you know. No, no. But oh, well, no, it's a DVD. Everyone's got a region-free DVD player. Not in America. Confuses them in America. They don't like yeah. it. No, no, they're confused. Great. This DVD isn't in full scap. Uh, now... <laughs> Our, print this our, illegal. Next, our next shows, where are we going to be? If you want to see us live, where uh, will next be? Shows. So our very next show will be on March the 10th at the Tuxedo Cat in North Terrace in Adelaide as part of the Adelaide Fringe... Well, it's not part of it's the Adelaide Fringe It's during the Adelaide Fringe Festival. It's during the Adelaide Fringe Festival. And that is because I will be there performing as part of the Adelaide Fringe Festival. So that one, um, if you're based in Melbourne, you, you will not be able to you come, come, well, you can come to Adelaide yeah. there's a whole no, festival on no in one fact. from Melbourne is allowed to visit Adelaide <laughs> <laughs> there's a barrier at the border I've got to pretend to be from Perth <laughs> like Toby but, um, but no, March, March, March 10th Tuxedo Cat details um, up soon on we our we'll website. have the details soon there's, there's been a little question about the exact time um, but as soon as we have the exact details the tickets will go on sale for that we should mm. have that very soon New York Times best-selling author Sean Williams will be joining us for that to talk that. John Pertwee and the concept of family in Doctor Who what does, um, it, what does it mean after that we'll be as part and we will actually be part not just during of the Melbourne International Comedy Festival we'll be doing two one hour episodes because we couldn't get a single two hour time slot <laughs> <laughs> covering Tom Baker and the concept of comedy in Doctor Who. One episode, each of those concepts, uh, on the 6th and 13th of April. The 6th of April is an early gig. It's at quarter to six. And the 13th of April is a late night show. It will be starting at quarter to 11. Both of them will go for an hour. We've got some great guests. And different guests for different each Different guests of them. for each one. So at the moment, um, and this is subject to availability, but at the moment we'll have a local comedy mistress of all things comedy, Janet McLeod, at our uh, afternoon show on the 6th. And also star of the new ABC show Steampunks, Paul Verhoeven will join us in that afternoon show to talk about Doctor Who. And then for the late one, we're joined by Dave Callan, who has a funny voice, so I'm looking forward to that. Yes. And the fabulous Adam Richard to talk comedy and Doctor Who. Different. And so basically the first show is about Tom Baker, the second show is about comedy. And we so may you... have other special guests yes. as well, subject <laughs> to what might happen. Who knows? Um, now also, we're the only podcast in the world with homework that I know of, as requested by you people. You're crazy. Uh, now, we have put the list together for our next show, which is um, three slash family. Petra, do you have our homework list for us? I do, John. Your homework, should you choose to accept it, is the following. If you've never seen The Third Doctor, we have selected the stories Spearhead from Space, Carnival of Monsters and Death to the Daleks. For the theme of family, we're looking at The Rescue, The Demons, The Keeper of Tracken, Father's Day and Dinosaurs on a Spaceship. 
I love dinosaurs on a spaceship. <laughs> oh, uh, I was talking about the concept, not the Doctor Who episode. <laughs> I've loved it for a long time. Thank you for clarifying. Yeah, no, that's yeah. great. Yeah, I thought there might be some confusion. <laughs> but it does what it says on the tin, so... So that's all for this show and for this month. Do join us again, won't you? So thank you for joining us. Uh, to take us out tonight, we have Dean R. Curie doing a song about a certain sexy companion. And until next time, remember... Thank, thank you. you. It's, it's good. good. Keep warm. <laughs> When it comes to Doctor Who There are two things that make me feel fine Sure, we all love our doctors But that's not all on my mind You need a really big bad And a companion's life on the line Well, you can't see the Dalek's eyes But that plunger looks dangerous, I know it It does look like a plunger As they search for the human factor And travel through time You know, I wish that I had Jamie's legs that I have Jamie's legs Where can I find a Scotsman like that? That's right, Fraser Hines as Jamie McCrimmon I get that wrong every time Was the companion who appeared in the most episodes of Doctor Who so far With 116 episodes And except for that one adventure No matter how cold it got He always looked fetching in a little kilt And I had quite a crush on him Well, he missed the boat to France so why not time and relative dimension in space instead? Oh, Jamie had those sexy legs and that accent was so cute. Look, I know he loved Victoria, but I think that point is mute. Cause he's stuck by Patrick Trouton's side. It was the bromance I yearned for, I just know it. If the Time Lords hadn't erased his mind, he'd still be traveling through time. Oh, I wish that I had Jamie's legs. I wish that I had Jamie's legs. Where can I find a Scotsman like that? Where can I find a Scotsman like that? Oh, Jamie, the master, he's got your face. My Scotman's, he's been replaced for one episode, but thank God the doctor fixed all that. Jamie was with him a whole long time. Who was the big bad that they both did see? Sure, the Daleks and the master survived. Or the great intelligence with his yetis. No. Where can I find a Scotsman like that with Jamie's legs? I wish that I had Jamie's legs. Where can I find a Scotsman like that? Where can I find a Scotsman like that? Apparently only in 1746. <laughs> Thank you very much. Splendid Chats. We'd like to thank this episode of Splendid Chats, Toby Trustlove and Dr. Joyney Baker. Your hosts were Ben McKenzie and John Richards. The audio engineering and theme tune were created by the technical wizardry of David Ashton from Sample and Hold Studios. You can find us at SplendidChats.com and at Splendid Chats on Facebook and Twitter. I'm Petra Elliott. Until next time, thank you. It's good. Keep warm. I, um, I'm just going to add...
I'm just going to interrupt. Do we really want to have this tagline, keep warm, given our last two shows? <laughs> Should we hey, alter this? Is it our There's going to be people in the Northern Hemisphere listening. It's cold there right now. Um, actually, can I talk fan fiction for a second? I was going to mention Sorry. before, with, with shipping, that... Uh, you mentioned the invasion, and it occurred to me watching it that if you decide that Vaughn and Packer are a couple, their relationship makes a lot more sense. Yes, it does. It does. <laughs> it so, so does. Are you going to have one of these revelations every I episode? I hope I will. <laughs> Last time it was the whole, the doctors killed Kill Dodo, Dodo thing, and yeah. now this time Packer and Vaughn are having By the time end, on. you're going to be weeping watching this show, going this... <laughs> Harrowing Battlestar Galactica style oh, drama. No. Of it's all gritty regret. and realistic. Yeah. <laughs>